Jennifer Crumley, the mother of Ethan Crumley, the teenager who took the lives of four students at an Oxford, Michigan high school in 2021, was found guilty yesterday of all four counts of involuntary manslaughter. The jury deliberated for more than 10 hours and Crumbly, who had pled not guilty to the charges in November, 20, uh, November of 2021. Prosecutors had argued that she was grossly negligent in not securing the firearm that had and had a legal duty to prevent her son from harming others. And even if she didn't know of his specific plan. So what now for Jennifer Crumley? And what does justice look like in similar cases as we move forward? I'm Collier Landry. Let's get into it. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial. In when I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. I decided at an early age that our trauma should not be what defines us. It's what we choose to do with it that does. I'm here to share my unique perspective on true crime, mental health, society, and popular culture, albeit with a slight sense of humor. I'm Collier Landry, and welcome to my show. Mover Nation, <laughs> wherever you may be and however you may be listening, thanks for making me a part of your day, listening or watching. I'm Collier Landry, and welcome to my show. This is the place where I give you my unique perspective on true crime, mental health, society, and popular culture, and albeit, with a slight sense of humor. Nothing funny about what is happening right now and what the verdict was that came down yesterday, but we're going to get into it. But first, Mover Nation is growing. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. We have 19 new channel members in the last 10 days. Partially, thank you so much to Gen X Granny, uh, channel members Gen X Granny and Black Widower for donating some uh, memberships, gifting some memberships to other channel members. So thank you so much for that. Uh, let me read the list. We have Lisa Ann, R.L. Froze, Molly's Mom, Dom's Mom 725, Terry Jones, Creative Minds, Lori Green, Esmeralda, Bernisa, Old Lady Snoop, Listener, Nest T or Nays T, Wendy, The Enchanted Garden, Trevor William, Susie DeFell, Doris, Forever Curious, and illegally read. Thank you all so much for joining our wonderful channel. And without you guys, uh, you know, uh, your support means the world to me. You have no idea because it helps make this show possible. And uh, yeah, we get to talk about all these very, very interesting topics because, uh, and some of them are really heavy. I had some heavy conversations earlier today, which I was not expecting. Well, I guess I should have been expecting. Um, I had interviewed a another uh, a survivor on our uh, on my podcast uh, Survivor Squad that I host with Tara Newell, and it was some really really heavy stuff. This uh, this woman had um, had written a book. Um, her name is uh, Kimberly Shannon Murphy. She is a Hollywood stunt performer and stunt actress, and she is most famous for being Cameron Diaz's um, stunt double on many many movies. And uh, they're good friends. And she wrote a book called Glimmer, discussing her trauma that she had from age three to 11. And it involved her family. And she's got a fantastic book. So we were discussing, it's been a day of discussing some really heavy topics. I was actually very surprised at the verdict yesterday in the Jennifer Crumley trial. Um, but I think there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot to discuss. 
So, uh, heavy, heavy stuff yesterday. The Jennifer Crumley trial uh, came to an end. She has been on trial for the last, I don't know, 10 days. Um, and obviously, this is there's been a lot of fanfare about this. There has been a lot of um, a lot of people, very polarizing topics involving school mass casualties, and a lot of people, you know, have strong opinions on this. And also, a lot of people were very nervous as to what the outcome of all this is. So, if you are sitting here and you are going, "What is all this about?" I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the case just to bring you up to speed. So. Jennifer Crumley's son, Ethan Crumley, was uh, pled guilty back in December on December in back, I believe, in December of 2023, where he was officially sentenced in December of 2023. He had pled guilty to uh, this mass casualty event at Oxford High School in which the lives of four students and seven uh, other peoples uh, were injured in this mass casualty event. I got to tiptoe around because it's YouTube. Um, and he has already been sentenced to life in prison. He was 15 when the incident occurred and 17 when he um, was obviously convicted and and, and um, sentenced to life imprisonment. Um, this has been a very polarizing issue because both of his parents were arrested shortly after the mass casualty event. They were fine hiding out in an art studio outside of Detroit. Um, and they were trying to formulate a plan to either, as they claim, turn themselves in, but police also thought that they were evading evading law enforcement. So, um, this they have been held, uh, they have been uh, jailed ever since. So this is they were discovered on, I believe, the morning, early morning hours of December fourth, twenty twenty one, which was th four days after the mass casualty event, and um, uh, they have just been awaiting trial ever since. Now. Jennifer Crumley was the first uh, was the first parent to be tried. Uh, they are trying both of the parents separately, and this, you know, there's a there is a lot of very strong feelings on this case, and I want to kind of break it down from my perspective as a survivor of violent crime, and also, you know, a lot of people were very elated to see what they felt like was justice. Again, and I want to read some statements from some jurors, and I do want us to consider the costs of all of this. As like I said, four young people's lives were taken, and just to remember them, that is Hannah St. Juliana, Justin Schilling, Tate Meyer, uh, Tate Meir, and Madison Baldwin. And Jennifer Crumley was found guilty of manslaughter on all four of those of those charges um and uh, she can face up to 15 years in prison for each of those counts of involuntary manslaughter which is you know it's a lot <laughs> um so at the crux of the prosecution's case they honed it on three key elements. Uh, first was her awareness of her son's mental health challenges, because this had played a really big role in whether she was acknowledging of those, whether she was um, uh, going to get him health care, et cetera. And a lot of this played in it. And, and again, this is a very polarizing topic because it involves freedoms that we enjoy here in the United States. And some people feel as though this might have implications beyond the scope of just this trial.
Um, first, so they, so they said that it was the awareness of his mental health challenges. Secondly, the means by which he obtained the firearm. And finally, it was her conduct during a crucial school meeting preceding the tragic mass casualty event on November 30th, 2021. She was called into the she was called in by uh, school officials to meet with her son. Both parents were, and they left. And then this mass casualty event happened. So prosecutors endeavored to de depict her as a neglectful mother, emphasizing her purported preoccupation with horses and an extramarital affair, and suggesting a prioritization of personal pursuits over her son's welfare. The prosecution they claimed that Jennifer Crumley was aware or at least should have been aware of her son Ethan's worsening mental health problems. As evidence, they pointed to a sequence of text messages that he had sent her in the spring of 2021, detailing the presence of a ghost or a devil in their house and imploring her for a response, to which she allegedly did not apply, reply. Additionally, Ethan reported, uh, reportedly messaged a friend stating that he had confided in his parents about the hallucinations and sought assistance, but his mother purportedly responded with laughter. Now, however, in her testimony, Crumley said that the texts about the ghosts were just Ethan, quote, messing around, part of an ongoing joke about their house being haunted. She also said his text to a friend was false and that he never actually asked for help. She said, quote, I thought we were pretty close. We would talk. We did a lot of things together. I trusted him and I felt like I had an open door and he could come to me about anything. I felt as a family, the three of us were very close. Now, she obviously gave this testimony during her trial. She actually testified on her behalf, which if you know, in trials, you know, it can go either way. And, and my father who is incarcerated always had said to me, you know, the worst thing I did was testify at my trial. Um, I, I learned when I went to prison that, that you shouldn't do that. And I'm like, well, you should also probably not kill your wife. That's probably the first, the first way, the first line of defense and staying out of prison, that would be my first suggestion. Um, but, uh, so a lot of people think when a, when a defendant goes on the witness stand in their, on their behalf, it's just a recipe for disaster. I watched a lot of her testimony over the last couple of days. And I, I came into this trial again, very late. Like I always do always do with this true crime stuff, but I, um, I did watch some of her body language and the way that she was seemingly dismissive of her son. And, and remember Ethan is now 17 or 18. Now, um, she, he was 15 at the time, 15. And there's been a lot of, uh, conjecture out there on the interwebs as there often is about people being held accountable for other people's actions. Again, this is a minor that is under her care in her house. That is her son. And the crux of all of this is she was not a good parent. And again, and I'm going to get into a lot of this, but a lot of people are arguing, obviously, Monday morning quarterbacks, and there's a lot of uh, speculation going around about her um, about her attorney selection, who also had defended a very famous, famous doctor from uh, Michigan, Dr. Larry Nasser, and we all know how that ended up as well. But we'll get into that later. Um, 
it was really what the prosecution made it that she was a neglectful mother, that she was preoccupied with her extramarital affairs, that she was preoccupied with her love of horses, but also that she was irresponsible for not securing the weapon that was used in the mass casualty event. So the prosecution had leveled allegations against Crumley, asserting that she provided the, the weapon to her son and failed to store it appropriately. Following a visit to a, to a firing range uh, and store on November 27th, she reportedly posted on social media stating, stating, quote, mom and Sunday testing out his new Christmas present. And the prosecutor said in her closing arguments, quote, the shooter was given a murder weapon by his parents, and this parent is sitting here on trial today. But in her testimony, Crumbly testified that safely storing the gun was her husband's responsibility. Now, he will be facing prosecution here in a few weeks. His trial, I believe, is slated to start on March the 3rd. I'm not 100% sure on that, but in March for sure. She said, quote, I just didn't feel comfortable being in charge of that. Quote, it was more it was more his thing. So I let him handle that. I didn't feel comfortable putting the lock thing on it. Now, what she is talking about is a trigger lock. That is something that is a red lock that goes through the firearm and comes out and you lock it so it can't be loaded and you can't you can't chamber anything and it cannot most certainly be fired <laughs> if it is not loaded. Um, that is standard firearm owner 101. Um, standard firearm 101. I you know I live in California. We have very extreme gun laws. If you live here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, we are often the butt of the joke when it comes to our gun laws. But, um, you know, it, it is something that you have to take a test. You have to learn. You know, they give it to you. It, you have to pay for it when you when you take possession of the firearm here. And it is just something you do. Not only for in case, you know, somebody could take it, but also for your own safety and obviously for the safety of your child. So the fact that for me, the fact that this there wasn't a high priority around safety in the household is probably the thing that concerned me the most. Well, there were many things that concerned me. Um, but I do feel that maybe not prioritizing that safety is, is ultimately so problematic. And obviously the jurors felt the same way. Uh, lastly, the prosecution underscored Jennifer Crumley's lack of action during a meeting with school staff on the day of the tragic incident. On that fateful morning, a teacher discovered a drawing by Ethan depicting a firearm, a bleeding person, and chilling phrases such as, quote, the thoughts won't stop, help me, blood everywhere, and my life is useless. The Crumleys were summoned to the school for a meeting during which a school counselor testified that he had advised the parents to promptly take their son home for immediate mental health intervention. However, the counselor testified the Crumleys opted not to engage in the mentioned activities. Their decision was influenced by the reluctance to miss work. Consequently, the collective decision that was, ma was made to ensure Ethan remained in school for the entirety of the day, notably the Crumleys refrained from informing the school staff about their recent purchase of a new weapon firearm at, for Ethan or his previous attacks 
text alluding to hallucinations, hallucinations, hallucinations. <laughs> Shortly after the meeting, the teenager took the firearm out of his backpack that was in possession in the school and obviously took the lives of his fellow classmates, Hannah St. Juliana, Justin Schilling, Tate Muir, and Madison Baldwin. And members of their family were present during the sentencing yesterday in Michigan. Um, so, okay, a lot is going on with this. I'm going to play a little bit of a video that, um, that, uh, obviously the verdict and, uh, we will see what y'all think. Um, yeah, that's not it. And this is her just this is just the camera from the court sitting and the judge comes in. On behalf of Jennifer Crumbly, who sits to my left. Yes. All right, I'm gonna ask uh, when the jury reads their verdict after that, I want everyone to remain seated. So this is for you guys if you haven't seen it. This is a recap of the guilty verdict coming in. And then I want to talk about something happens at the end, which I think is very interesting. Fast forward here a little bit more. On count one of involuntary manslaughter, as to Madison Baldwin, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On count two of involuntary manslaughter in regards to Tate Muir, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On count three, as to involuntary manslaughter regarding Hannah, Hannah St. Juliana, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. And in count four of involuntary manslaughter against Justin Schilling, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Thank you for allowing you to see it. So, and a lot of people, I mean, there are people that come on the, on on YouTube and talk about the body language, etc. I'll, I'll just sum it up. She's obviously very upset <laughs> with the verdict. Um, you know, the biting of the lip, the closing the eyes, the whole thing um, is obviously she's in disbelief. Um, and after watching a lot of her testimony, I just, I have a hard time. I have a hard time understanding how she could be in disbelief. Um, she didn't come across as a very good mother, just to be frank about it. She didn't come across to me as someone who who really genuinely cared about her son. And it seemed more like he was an afterthought. And here's the thing. Um, I grew up part of my life in foster care, which is I wouldn't recommend for anyone. It's not a fun situation. Um, and I was adopted um, a year later and um, by a loving family. and. One of the things that I would go to these adoption groups and I would 
um, talk to other kids who were adopted because I obviously knew I was adopted, but a lot of kids didn't know they were adopted. They just thought that their family was their family, right? And so they had a lot of time, hard time processing that. But I remember specific kids being in uh, my adoption group that were adopted also later on in life, like myself. And they came from, they didn't come from quite the background I did, but they came from backgrounds that may have involved, you know, uh, family domestic violence, abuse, situations like that, um, substance abuse issues, you name it. I mean, the world is littered with these, with these cautionary tales, right? One of the things that I think that hurt a lot of these kids the most, and the thing that I always take away from what is the key is, is the child not feeling loved, not feeling heard, not feeling like a priority in their parents' life. And that leads them to act out in ways. And granted, I am not a parent, but I can speak from, from just growing up with these other kids and seeing this, that this was a massive, you know, a lot of them were, you know, had truancy issues or had, um, you know, issues of getting in fights in school and things like that. And I would talk to them just to sort of share my story because it was so public. They would kind of come to me for advice, even though many of them were older than me. But, um, I, you know, the thing that hurt them the most is feeling discarded, even in their own home, not being heard, not being, um, not being a priority to their to their mother or their father or the family um and not feeling accepted and that was even hard for me as a child too because i came into a family that already had a son right and even though i was embraced it it there was a dynamic that you know do i feel like the outsider or do you feel feel like one of the family and granted you know i was i was embraced by my loving adopted parents and it was still even hard for me, right, to to accept everything. So imagine being in a situation where you just never feel heard, you never feel accepted, you feel, you know, and, and I felt a lot of this with my father growing up before he murdered my mother, which was, um, you know, I didn't, it was, and I asked my father this in my film, I said, did you actually want to have a child? Because many people had suggested to me that my father didn't want to have a kid. And my father didn't want to have a son. And I was a burden to him in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, so I asked him that point blank because, you know, one of the things that we don't, that we might want to just sleep on, sweep under the rug and just go, okay, children are resilient. Children will come through. And look, I was a resilient kid. I get it. They'll figure it out. They'll take care of themselves. They'll, they'll, they'll grow up okay. But when you don't have that love and support in, in, that family, like in that home unit, this causes ways to act, ways for them to act out. And obviously, this case is the worst possible imaginative, uh, imaginable, the worst possible situation one could ever imagine happened to Ethan Crumley. And there were a lot of people saying, okay, well, she was a bad mother, this and that. This is a 15-year-old child who has not feel not felt like he was heard or seen by his family, is acting out in school, making these drawings, is talking, is trying to even engage with his family, 
and not getting the support, but let's get him something and insert whatever you want into the, the, um, and I don't mean to pontificate, but uh, maybe that's the word of the day pontification. Um, what I think, what I think, um, you, you can, you insert weapon is, is, is interchangeable with iPad, iPhone, um, Nintendo, uh, video game, PlayStation five, whatever you call it. There's certain things that you, that parents will just do to just, it's like, you know, giving them a pacifier, like, okay, this will, this will be the thing that I will buy for them. I will, I will do for them that will make them whole. And I don't need to be a parent. And you know, I, uh, you know, I grew up in a time when there was just the Nintendo and you had to play it. You had to ask for permission, but a lot of, you know, a lot of kids I see nowadays, they get, they're given an iPad. Like this is what will give them to, and I can't say that I would be different as a parent either. Uh, you know, it's a very powerful tool, um, to keep your child occupied so you can get work done or, or make dinner or what have you. But the thing is, is, is my point is that this is a child that did not feel seen, heard, loved, respected, etc. And then you get him something that will allow him, that would allow him not only to potentially harm himself, but harm others and even maybe even harm his parents. Um, so I think this is a cautionary tale for many, many reasons, many, many reasons. I'm going to continue though in my notes. Um, so the, his father's trial is now coming up because now we have the verdict. She is now facing, as I said, four potential 15 year sentences for each of the victims for the involuntary manslaughter. She has been in car, not incarcerated, but she has been in jail, uh, ever in custody ever since this event occurred, or like I said, December 4th, 2021. So, that's almost two years and two months that she's been um, in custody of, of the penal system and of the court system. Sorry. Um, so she will, I'm sure, get some time served. But and again, this is the judge's discretion. Does the judge want to give her, you know, let her have a sentence for each of the four victims and let those serve, you know, um, consecutively? <laughs> Or is she going to allow her to let them serve concurrently? Or can the judge adjust her sentencing according to her guidelines and what she thinks? That remains to be seen. Um, and now, as I said, James Crumley is going to be facing trial and in March. And he will also be charged. March the 5th is his trial date is supposed to begin. And he too will be confronted with the evidence that he didn't do enough to help his son before the mass casualty event jurors will see images of him and Ethan purchasing the firearm as well. Prosecutors, prosecutors also have a crucial piece of evidence against him, which is a 911 call that implies he quickly figured out that his son could be the person who caused the mass casualty event at Oxford high school. Um, he says, quote, I raced to this is to the 911 dispatcher. I raced home to just like find out. And I think my son took the gun. I don't know if it's him. I don't know what's going on. I'm really freaking out. My son's name is Ethan Crumley. Um, so they will level this same, um, they will level this same uh evidence on him as well. Um, 
I think, you know, and his, I believe his lawyers are actually, I saw an article earlier today, they're, they are, we're as of a couple of days ago, we're looking to like <laughs> remove some of the evidence. Um, and, uh, and in a perfect world, again, this is a jury in Michigan and they found her guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Um, it, it's, it's going to be interesting because they're going to have to get him a jury too. And none of this is admissible to, as far as his wife being found guilty is admissible into their verdict. They can't be like, well, we just, we just found her guilty. So you should find him guilty. It's not how the law works. Right. And again, I am not a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not a psychologist. I do not work in law enforcement. I'm just a guy who's been through a lot of shit. Yes. I promise the t-shirts are coming, but this is my perspective. And that's why you guys are here. But he, the courts are supposed to not bring that in. But how do you find even a jury? This has been this has been covered everywhere. It's covered in the UK. It's there's a massive amount of interest in this. So how do you even? Again, this is very similar to the Murdoch thing. How do you find people who could even sit on a jury that don't know about this or know the ramifications? Because obviously, it involves something that is very polarizing in this country, in the United States, which is firearms and firearm safety. It seems like every week we turn on the television or maybe even every day that there are these mass casualty events that just seem to, this is like a runaway train in a lot of, in a lot of ways. So a lot of legal experts have weighed in on what this is. And I also want to get, uh, I do want to get back to that video of the courtroom because there's something at the end that I think is really, really key. Um, and I will get into that shortly. Um, so Many, so, okay, so I won't get into her defense attorney just yet. Um, so this is what some of the jurors said, because now they're being interviewed. This all happened yesterday. Of course, they're all on all the media, making all the media rounds, right? So the four women of the jury said that, uh, that they found Jennifer Crumley guilty of involuntary manslaughter, um, that there was one piece of key evidence that led them to that verdict. Because the jury had listened to 21 witnesses for the prosecution over seven full days in the courtroom, and they deliberated for two days or more than 10 hours across one and a half days to come to that decision. She said, quote, the thing that really hammered it home is that she was the last adult with the firearm. And the evidence that she was referring to was the shooting range surveillance footage from a trip that Jennifer and her son Ethan had took on November 27th, 2021, one day after the weapon was purchased. Footage shows that each took a couple of turns at the range, and when they left, Jennifer Crumley was carrying the case with the Sig Sauer 9mm handgun inside of it. She said her husband got it out of the car after work and secured it in the house, but there was no evidence to indicate that. The last visible piece of evidence showed the gun in Jennifer's hands three days before the mass casualty event took place. In order to prove involuntary manslaughter, prosecutors had to prove either gross negligence or negligence or failure to perform a legal duty. They presented evidence in the form of unanswered text messages from Ethan, signs that he needed help, and photos of how the guns were stored at the house. In response, Crumley testified that it was her husband that was in charge of securing the guns and said that her son was only joking when he texted about seeing demons and hallucinating 
and that she and her husband were planning to turn themselves in hours after being taken into custody. In the end, the jury decided that she was just asking them, quote, to believe too much. While jurors agreed that the firearm was a key piece of evidence, it's the text messages and the drawings in Ethan's notebooks that were also notebook that was also extremely impactful. And the notebook was found on Ethan's backpack in a bathroom at Oxford High School on the day of the shooting. According to testimony, the last entry was dated November 29th, the day before the shooting and read, the shooting is tomorrow. I have access to the firearm and the ammo. Other entries read, the first victim has to be a pretty girl with a future so she can suffer like me. I have fully mentally lost it after years of fighting with my dark side. My parents won't listen to me about help or a therapist. I'm sorry for this, mom and dad. I'm not trying to hurt you by doing this. I have to do this. The journal also included drawings of bullets, a severed head, and what appeared to be a demon. Detectives also found text messages from Ethan to his friend saying that he has asked his parents to take him to a doctor after he was having hallucinations and hearing voices. He told his friend that in, that in response, his father gave him pills and told him to, quote, suck it up. According to the phone messages, he told his friend that his mother had laughed at him. Quote, they make me feel like I'm the problem, he texted. My mom makes everyone feel like a piece of shit. When cross-examined, however, Detective Wagrofsky admitted that he did not find any text messages between Ethan and his parents and that there was, quote, nothing to indicate that, Je that Jennifer or James were told or were aware of the plan to commit the mass casualty event at the school. So again, and like I just said, he said apparently to his friend, they make me feel like I'm the problem. My mom makes everyone feel like a piece of shit. And that is, again, as I said in my diatribe, not too many minutes ago, is I think the crux of the biggest problem is this is a child who felt neglected and who felt like no one could hear them. So they had to do the unthinkable. And I think that is ultimately where no matter where you, and again, this is such a hot political issue too, because this, this trial, you know, obviously there are people on both sides of the firearm issue here in the United States it is a wide range of people and how they feel about this with two very polarizing views of one another. And I, um, I think that we have to be a little more myopic when it comes to this particular situation. Um, and that, you know, can be hard for a lot of people. Because at the core, in my opinion, as someone who has lived through something like this, not a mass casualty event, but a mass casualty event in my own world, which is the murder of my mother by my father, which I heard happen, which I convinced investigators to believe me. Um, I think when you neglect a child so much and they feel like there is no hope that they are going to do whatever they can to get attention, just like a child that screams and th throws a temper tantrum. This is obviously a much more extreme case. And I think if we look at it from the lens of this particular event was caused by this behavior, right? Or this lack of attention to these very 
glaring details. And it is, you know, we can all put on glasses and look in the rearview mirror. Hindsight is 2020. But when you look at this and you see how she was and you even see how she is on the witness stand, you get this feeling that she just wasn't necessarily there in the way that she should have been for her son. And obviously his, his him reaching out and this cry for help is what it feels like to me. Again, I go back to the kids that I was in the system with and listening to their stories of not feeling hurt and why they would act out of school. Now, did they do this? Absolutely not. But they would get in fights. They would steal. They would shoplift. Shoplifting was a huge thing. Um, you know, they would, they would act out in ways just to feel heard, just because they wanted that attention. I was speaking to someone who, um, who was telling me about their time at a mental facility, mental health facility as a child. And they were talking about how kids would act out in the mental health facility as well. Um, uh, and I remember them sharing the story of, uh, you know, by the way, in those facilities, they wake you up every, every two hours and they, they, you know, do, you know, I, they want to make sure you're okay and you haven't done anything to yourself. There's a certain watch for that. Can't say the word, of course, because it's YouTube, but you know what I'm referring to. Um, so, you know, a lot of these people, a lot of these people, um, you know, have been through, you have seen when you come from these traumatic circumstances, how children want to act out. And even the negative attention is attention. Nonetheless, there's a lot of studies in, um, that have to do with solitary confinement in, in prisons in America and how oftentimes those prisoners who act out, who are in solitary confinement are only acting out while they're in solitary confinement, just to get a human connection, just to get something. Because they've been, you know, sealed in a box for 24 hours a day or 23 and a half hours a day without any human contact. And it is definitely proven that we need to have contact and we need to have empathy with others and we need to have that human connection. And so if he doesn't feel that with his parents, just much like these, these people are acting out who are incarcerated, he's going to do the extreme. And that's. And and maybe it's far fetched to to draw this type of conclusion from the situation, but I feel like it's not. I feel like it's not. And we need to, when we're looking at this, we need to realize that the reason why all of this happened was the child didn't feel heard. And again, he pled guilty to all of this. And obviously, what is what happens is four young people's lives are lost. And that is ultimately the casualty of this. So to address that point, I want to show this is after the guilty verdict. Thank you so much, listener. Some who yes. who disagree Jerry. with the verdict uh, claim that now parents will be arrested for all crimes their kids commit. Not true. Nobody has to be parent of the year. Just don't neglect your kid. I would absolutely 100% agree with that. Like, let's not be hyperbolic, guys. Let's not be hyperbolic. This is not going to be a situation where people are going to come. The, the you know, the... <laughs> The part and parcel of the modern media and social media is to put people in a constant fear state. Um, 
don't know why I'm getting into this, but I'll just get into it is to keep people in a constant fear state. And so if they can, if they can weaponize this in a way, which is absolutely horrific, by the way, to prey on people's fears, like, look, this should be a cautionary tale for parents out there. Like you could be held accountable. You could be held responsible, but this is not, let's take up, you know, arms against the system because now people are going to start, the dominoes are going to start falling. I don't see how that's even possible, but this was a 15 year old child, fifth child, child, not an adult, not somebody who's on the crux of being 18 or in college, a child under the age of 16. And that's below the legal age of consent that I believe is in Michigan. Like I'm from Ohio. And I believe our age of consent was reduced from 18 to 16. Like you can't even consent to any sort of relationship with another human, with another one of your peers until your age 16, right? That's the age of consent, right? So he's not even at the age of consent. You know, there are so many studies that go on about how our brains develop and when they develop and later on in life, age 25 is always the magic number when we sort of are fully developed and we realize our frontal lobe is developed and we realize the impact of our actions and what the world is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, again, this is a child. This is a child. And I think that we really forget this and that he, the people he trusted the most, the people that he trusted the most let him down. Um, so I'm going to play this because I think this is the, number 11. and is that, is that your yes. they, they go through now they're, they're going through individually, like all the jurors asking them if this is their verdict, asking them if they are, um, you know, you know, they go through all of them to make sure that one doesn't say, well, no, I didn't agree. So there wouldn't be a hung jury and there can be a mistrial, et cetera, et cetera. Cause the judge would probably say, you need to go back and figure this out. <laughs> but all of them agreed. All of them stood, all of them stood up there and said, this was my verdict. Um, but I want to get to the end of this. Yes. During seat number 14, was that and is that your verdict? Yes. During seat number 16, was that and is that your verdict? Yes. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. We all know that this is one of the hardest things you've ever done. I'm going to ask you to return uh, to the uh, jury room. Uh, your, uh, the two remaining alternates are also going to join you, and I'll be with you in a few minutes. So now they take her, they're going to take her away in handcuffs. And I know it's really tough for a lot of people because, you know, they want to feel like justice is served. Look at her being led away. You know, also there's a human element to this. This is a, a mother who is probably kicking herself for all of her decisions and poor decisions at that, that led her to this place. And probably, I, and I believe in the beginning of the trial, she had cried when seeing some of the footage of the mass casualty event. And she, um, you know, and I, and I guess that went, uh, that went beyond the court's discretion and I guess she was not allowed to show emotion. I don't know how you don't do that. Um, but, uh, you know, this is someone who's, whose life has been forever altered. And obviously the lives of four young people's lives are altered as well. Um, yeah. So 
I mean, it's it's it. Everyone loses in this situation. But this is the thing that a lot of people were looking at. I took note of it yesterday when I saw it. Like, oh, this is interesting. So the prosecution, and I believe that's the police detective, they go by, and that's, uh, I believe, uh, um, Tate, uh, Tate's father, I believe, standing up with the goatee, shaking hands. And this actually makes me sad to see, I'm not going to lie. Um, makes me sad to see that because nothing is going to bring back their loved ones. No amount of prosecution, no amount of, um, of pursuit of charges, nothing is going to bring back their children. And I think that you know, Again, this is something that I talk about because the consequences of violence are very interesting to me as someone who's lived through this, is we don't think about the ramifications and the repercussions. And, we're, and I know that a lot of people, maybe pitchforks in hand, are like, she needs a fry, she needs to go down, this and that. Everyone's lives is destroyed by this. Everyone's life has been forever altered the victims, the survivors, the seven survivors who were badly injured in the mass casualty event, the community, the parents, obviously, of the, of the four victims, parents in the community, everyone has been impacted, including Jennifer and James Crumley. Because let's just say that if they had been acquitted or if she, if she had been acquitted, what does her life look like? What does her life really look like out of incarceration? Uh, she's released and she's released back into the community. Like, what does that look like? And again, now we have James Crumley and are they bad parents or criminals? So I want to read some reactions. I read you a little bit of what the juror four person said and why they said that. They arrived at the verdict. Um, so legal experts have weighed in on CNN saying that while the verdict is unprecedented and that it holds a parent directly accountable in a school mass casualty event, a verdict of this exact nature is likely is likely to remain incredibly rare. Janet Johnson, a criminal defense attorney, said, quote, what's historic is that the parent is that parents are generally responsible for unseen things that their child could do. But this rose to the level where it was foreseeable. And again, again, bad parents are criminals, you know, and their or Jennifer's neglect and Jennifer's um, not taking action is what has landed her with this guilty verdict and going to spend quite a bit of time in prison. Um, 
Janet Johnson, um, oh, sorry, Eve Primus, Yale Casimir, uh, collegiate professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School, told CNN, I think many people have seen the verdict and have thought that this case is somehow opens the floodgates to a number of additional prosecutions of parents for the acts of their minor children. And I actually don't necessarily agree. There are high requirements for prosecutors. Uh, prosecutors must meet to prove involuntary manslaughter cases, including that the defendants were grossly negligent and that the deadly outcome could have been foreseen, she said. There were circumstances around Ethan Crumley's case that gave the prosecutor a lot of evidence that probably doesn't exist in a lot of other cases, Primus said. Uh, many legal experts saw the meeting between Ethan's parents and school officials on the morning of the mass casualty event as that crucial, crucial piece of evidence that led to the verdict. The Crumleys were called into the school for a meeting after a teacher found violent drawings from Ethan that included a gun, a personal bleed, a person bleeding, and the phrase, the thoughts is the phrases, the thoughts won't stop, and blood everywhere. The school counselor had testified that the Crumleys declined to take their son out of school because they didn't want to miss work. Now it was shown in her trial that. Her boss at the time had a very family-friendly firm and would have let her miss her day at work, no problem, to deal with any of this. Quote, the school administrators were handicapped by not having the knowledge that he had a firearm. Because after, when the parents did not agree to take him, uh, take him out of school, but they did agree to take him to a, uh, a mental health professional within 48 hours, but they did not mention to the school that they had recently purchased a firearm for Ethan 72 hours before this event happened, 96 hours, three, four days before, and posted about it on social media. Quote, the school administrators were handicapped by not having the knowledge that he had a firearm. They didn't check the school book bag. The parents were aware that he had a firearm, at least in the home, and did not check and did not follow up. Involuntary manslaughter is not is is based not on intent, Coates explained, but on careless disregard, extreme recklessness, and negligence. Quote, where you could have prevented something and did not do so. So again, I think it it would be very hard to prove this in other situations where a child just runs rampant and just does whatever and you're not aware of it, right? So it's not really fanciful to think that this is going to open the floodgates uh, to all of this, uh, to more of these types of prosecutions, because, you know, unless, I mean, I think this gets as close, and he, he even talked about it in the trial, that the the combination on the safe was zero, 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 where the firearm was located, making you think like, why it doesn't even sound like they try to, they, when you get delivered the safe, it, the combination is zero, zero, zero. So they didn't even think to, potentially change that. So that also is a, is a massive problem. And so again, this negligence that came into play and apparently they were negligent to their child as well. Um, I want to play a, I want to play the interview with, um, one of the victim's fathers. 
echoed throughout every household in the country. And I feel it's necessary, and I'm, I'm happy with the verdict, even though it's still a sad situation to be in. Um, it, it's it's got to stop. Um, everything that's going on, um, we have to address everything. And, you know, the root cause, you know, everybody involved, uh, it's accountability. And, you know, this is what we've been asking for for a long time now. And uh, this, this is still just one step in the process. Um, there's more to do. And we all have more to do. We all have work now. We all know that we are to be held responsible for anything that we do. So that being said, it's, it's important to sit down and, and do some deep thinking and, and reflect on everything that we do every day. You know, it's, it's, it's a milestone and, and it feels like it. Obviously, it's an unprecedented situation for a parent of a school shooter to be convicted. Why did you think that was an important thing to do in this case? Because it, the bleeding has to stop. There's, there has to be a level of accountability that hasn't been there before. Um, this, we can't, we can't just continue living life um, with the uncertainty of whether or not our kids are going to come home from school or uh, are we going to have fun at the game or you know anything. It, it doesn't matter what circumstances, and it's necessary to address. It and, if you, know, you guys can hear me, I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> so obviously um again some of the stuff that i saw on social media was talking about how and this is my takeaway because this is why you're here right a couple of things um a lot of things i saw on social media was that there was now justice for these for young people whose lives were taken um that this this verdict somehow gives closure gives necessary closure to uh the victims families and, and as he said there's more work to be done obviously the trial of james crumley is coming up next month um but here's the thing. We talk about closure a lot. And I, as a young man and as someone who pursued a career in the arts to find the answer that I thought that I needed that would help me be the final thing that I would move on, which is why did my father murder my mother? Why did he choose to make these really poor decisions? And feeling that Oh, I need this closure. You're always going to get that moment of closure. I was discussing this earlier today. Closure is just a myth. You're never going to find closure because we're never going to be able to explain why these things occurred, um, what was going through, why did this happen to me and my family. You're not going to be able to explain any of that away. This is just the nature of tragedy and trauma. However, however, there are without a doubt opportunities that you can take in your life to help heal those wounds and to help 
to help reconcile with yourself and move forward. Um, and it's tough stuff. It's tough stuff. I wouldn't wish this on anyone. Um, but it's possible. Hey, I'm sitting here. It's possible. Um, it's possible. You just got to take it one step at a time. Anyways, um, uh, again, four young people have lost their lives. Hannah St. Juliana, Justin Schilling, Tate Meyer, and Madison Baldwin. And also, a young man who thought that he had no hope and parents who maybe should have listened a little more, maybe should have cared a little more. I don't know. Mover Nation, we get through another one. It's a somber day. But um, on that note, I'm Collier Landry. I'll see you on the next one. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. For exclusive content around this podcast, please consider supporting me via Patreon by going to collierlandry.com forward slash support. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a five-star review. If you want to see video episodes of this podcast, please check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash collierlandry. You can find links to additional resources in the show notes of today's episode. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Copyright, Collier Landry.